Welcome to the Chorus Deep and Wide Podcast. This is episode four with Tom Schreiner. Well, I'm really excited about our guest on the podcast today. We have eminent Pauline scholar Tom Schreiner. Many years ago, I was a student at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I had the opportunity to take several classes with Tom. And also, I got to be a fellow member with him and sit under his leadership at Clifton Baptist Church there in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm really excited to welcome Tom Schreiner to the podcast today. Well, welcome, everyone. I have Dr. Tom Schreiner on the line with me right now. It's really a privilege to get to talk to him once again. He was perhaps my favorite professor over at Southern Seminary back then. And then I just had the joy of getting to serve along with him at Clifton Baptist there in Louisville. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing well, Kevin, and it's good to talk to you again. I'm excited about November. Our desire is to have you do a conference probably on gender and gender roles in November. I'm looking forward to that. So I am too. I am too. That topic never gets old. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty relevant right now for sure. Well, we're preaching through the book of Ephesians right now, and I thought I'd take some time, if it's okay with you, and just talk about some of the themes of the book with you today. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. That sounds great, Kevin. Great. Well, chapter one jumps right away into the doctrine of election. And chapter two deals with, at least I think we both think, regeneration preceding faith. Could you just talk about those two concepts a little bit, how they're related, what they mean, and then what you would, what you might say to someone who is struggling with those ideas? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is I think Paul, Ephesians, as I'm, I know you've been preaching, Ephesians is all about the church. Mm -hmm. of of Jesus Christ. And what Paul wants to emphasize in Ephesians is the church is created according to the word of God. Mm -hmm. So wh wh what is the origin of the church? The origin of the church doesn't uh, lie in, uh, in, in, hu in the human subject or in the human decision. Mm -hmm. The origin of the church lies in the grace of God. So I think that explains why he immediately starts with election. I mean, after all, Paul was Jewish, and you read in the Old Testament, why is it that the Jews were the people of God? Well, because God chose them to be his people. Mm -hmm. So I think Paul, from the very beginning, is saying, you Christians, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, you're part of the new community because of God's electing grace. Or, or because of his chapter two, his re regeneration, he's given you new life. Mm -hmm. But, but I, what I like to say there is what Paul says there wouldn't surprise any Jewish person who knew the Bible. That's, that was true of the Jews in the Old Testament. They're, they were elect to be God's people. And, and if they were regenerate, they were circumcised in their heart by, by the Lord himself. So Paul's not saying anything novel except for to say, now Gentiles also who believe in Jesus are included in this in this 
community, this church. That's good. Well, another theme, of course, in chapter one is the glory of God. You know, you, your Paul, your Pauline theology is titled Apostle of God's Glory in Christ. Your your New Testament theology is magnifying God's glory in Christ. Can you talk about that theme in chapter one and the relevance of that for us today? Yeah, well, it, it's so fascinating that uh, in, in chapter one, especially verses 3 through 14, where he does talk about election and redemption and God's plan for history and and the work of the Spirit. But three times he punctuates that, that God did that, verse 6, uh, for the praise of the glory of his grace, or verse 12, for the praise of his glory, or verse 14, again, to the praise of his glory. And actually begins, doesn't he, in verse 3 with St. Blessed, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is another way of saying praise God, give him, give him glory. So, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't expound these doctrines just to fill our heads, although that's important to understand these things, but we are given these teachings so that we'll, we'll praise and honor and, and glorify God. And uh, we'll, we will we will exalt him. So we'll exalt him personally. We'll exalt him corporately. We'll exalt and praise him forever. That that's what life is all about. Um, as I, I think Augustine just said that another way. When he said, "Our hearts are restless, and they find rest when they rest in Thee." And another way of saying that is, I think our hearts find rest when we don't glorify ourselves or exalt or magnify ourselves, but when we glorify and honor and praise God. Because the devil and our own sinful nature tells us, well, we'll really be happy if, if we're exalted, if we're praised. But, but God teaches us in the scriptures, no, it's just the opposite. We'll be happy when we praise and honor and glorify our creator. Well, moving into chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 are, of course, some of the best known in scripture what do they teach us about grace, about faith, about works, and kind of tacking on the end of that? Is the Reformation, is it still relevant today, or are we past all that stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll say something about the last thing first. Okay. Is the, is the Reformation still relevant today? The Reformation isn't over, and uh, the Reformation right. can never be over. I, I'm, not, I'm not only talking about Catholics here, although I was raised as a Catholic. Mm -hmm. And and I can say, being raised as a Catholic, I didn't know, and I think that's true of the vast majority of Catholics, I didn't know the gospel of grace. And so it's really rather silly to think that the Reformation's over because mm -hmm. uh, you think of people all around the world who don't know the gospel because the Reformation was really just a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and And many people, I, I would say Roman Catholics, but many Protestants, they don't really know the gospel. Many Protestants are just taught what it means to be a Christian is to be a nice person mm -hmm. and to be moral and to try to follow Jesus. And of course, I'm, I think we should try to follow Jesus. I'm not against that. <laughs> but, but that's not the, what the gospel is. The gospel isn't try to follow Jesus, try to be a nice person, try to be good. And so Paul's teaching on grace in Ephesians is so important what if we were to define grace i think we could define grace as uh as god's unmerited favor god's 
riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you've heard that little acronym. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, but, but it's, it is, and it is that. But it's more than that. We see in Ephesians as well that God's grace is, is powerful. God's grace is transforming. You know, sometimes we might use, we could envision somebody handing you a present and, uh, you could choose to open it or you could choose not to open it. And sometimes grace is presented that way. Here God gives you a gift and then you choose to open it. But that's not quite the definition of grace in Ephesians 2. The definition of grace is that God's power, God's grace gives you new life. It, it, when you're dead in trespasses and sins, he uh, gives you new life and, and, and raises you and seats you with Christ. And right after, right when Paul's saying that, that God has given you new life in Christ, he says, by grace you are saved. Clearly his teaching is grace is God's power. Mm-hmm. It, God, grace invades our lives. It, and so, and so what does grace do? It transforms our desires. And, and therefore it makes sense that Paul says, by grace you're saved through faith. And, and that, not of yourselves, it's, it's the gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. So I, th- I think Paul means there that faith itself is a gift. Faith itself is a product of God's grace. The, the word this, the word this, if I can say something technical for a moment, the word this is neuter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the word, the word faith is feminine, but so is the word grace feminine. Mm-hmm. So the, the antecedent of that, this is a bit technical, but the antecedent is the whole thing. That is, everything is a result of grace. Uh, God's grace, uh, including your faith. Uh, so, so when, when Paul speaks of God's grace, he speaks of it as transforming our whole being. Come, we become new creatures. And therefore, it's not surprising as well that in verse 10, he says, the result of that is we'll do good works. But the good works don't come first. They come after God's grace has transformed us. So the good works aren't, works aren't the basis of our new relationship with God. They're the consequence of our new relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So, so God, so God does change us so that we become more like Jesus. That's not the basis of our salvation. It's the result of it. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, in chapter two at the beginning, you've got those, those two words that are so huge, but God. And then it goes into, you've been saved by grace through faith. But then you have the second two big words, but now, right? And it, it launches into talking about how God is bringing together Jew and Gentile. How do you think those verses can help us today as we wrestle with issues of race and, and as we aspire, as we should aspire for racial unity in the church? Yeah. Well, I'm the first, uh, the, I, you're right. Those verses are so important. The first thing I want to say is for believers of every ethnic background, every class, we already are unified. So that's, that's the first thing to say. At the cross, what does Paul argue? The unity has already been accomplished in the cross. We are one in Christ. Whether we feel like we're one or not, we are. Uh, so, so that's, that's, that's imperative. Paul doesn't argue with the Jews and Gentiles. You guys ought to get united and get together first. He argues you are together. You are united in the cross. He has broken down the wall of hostility. He's brought you both near by the blood of Christ. So it, it, I, I think what's fascinating is Paul argues theologically first. 
What's the most important thing to, for the Jews and Gentiles or any ethnic group anywhere to be reconciled? If they're Christians, it's to recognize that they are reconciled at the foot of the cross. We are one body. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't have to create a unity that's not there. Instead, and I here I go to Ephesians 4, we maintain a unity we already have. And, that, and notice that's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. That you maintain and preserve the unity God's already given us. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really helpful, I think, for us to reflect upon, because I think sometimes when we talk about racial reconciliation, we start trying to work very hard to attain something that seems really difficult. And there are difficulties uh, practically that we could talk about in a minute. But I but I like to start with saying. Here's the answer. So the second thing I like to say is the secular world, it depends, right? The secular world's divided. But many in the secular world really want such reconciliation. And sometimes as Christians, because we look back and see some of our sins in this area, sometimes we feel a little bit embarrassed and sometimes we feel like, oh, they do better than we do at it. Hmm. Um, but we have to remember they don't have the answer. They don't have the answer to why human beings are divided from one another. And therefore, no matter how attractive it may seem to us, their own proposals will not work. Because those who are alienated from God will ultimately be alienated from one another. So even though it may look attractive to us, and even though they may even have some good ideas, ultimately they won't experience true reconciliation. So... True reconciliation is is found in the cross of Christ, in his blood, by which he reconciled us to God. When we're truly reconciled to God, when we're that is, when we're truly believers, when we're truly saved, God will put in our hearts a desire to show that love to people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, of course, I'm, I haven't talked about this very much. But there's all kinds of practical ways that we can pursue that. Mm-hmm. And, and we should try to pursue that. That's a, that's a very complex question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But, but I like to just start with the theology because a lot of people never talk about that. That's true. They, they just immediately leap to what should we do now? And of course, there are some things to do now. But if we forget that our reconciliation is based on the cross and in the gospel, it actually can become a kind of new legalism and 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 end up not being very productive, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Well, we're in, in chapter 3 this week, and the idea of the mystery comes through pretty loud and clear there. Um, we've entitled our sermon series, The Beautiful Mystery, and I think that is Tom Schreiner approved. I think I shot that off of you before I led us that direction. But can you can you talk a little bit about what that mystery is, what Paul's talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we, we first see it in chapter one, don't we? Mm-hmm. And, and I do like that title. I think it's good that the mystery, the mystery is finally that all of history is uh, summed up in, 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 in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. God's purposes find their fulfillment in, in him. So when it comes to Ephesians 3, what does that look like? The mystery, which is, what is a mystery? A mystery for Paul is something that was previously hidden, but is now revealed. 
the mystery for Paul is that now Jew and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus are one body, that they are, that we belong to one another, that we're, we're equal members of the body, we're fellow heirs, we're fellow partakers of, of the promise uh, in, in Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I always like to say here is, you know, for, for modern Americans, we hear that and we think, that's obvious. <laughs> I mean, what's, why is that a mystery? But we have to remember that God chose the Jews in the Old Testament to be his people. And there were very few Gentiles who, uh, belonged to God and they, and they actually came to God by becoming part of the Jewish people. So, uh, for people in the first century, uh, it, it was quite astonishing that Jews and Gentiles would be equal in the body, mm -hmm. uh, of Christ. And then again, and, and it goes back to your last question. So once again, we can say, look, we're, we're united. We're, we're all one in Christ. No, no one is better than anyone else, uh, in, in, in qualitatively in the body. And, and, and so we certainly, we certainly have a platform for maintaining our unity and, and loving one another as, as Christians. And, and Paul does say in chapter three, and you're preaching on it, that the angelic powers look on the church, uh, with awe. And, and, and I think that's a very helpful thing to reflect on as well, because sometimes we look at the church and we feel kind of discouraged, <laughs> but we're reminded we don't see the whole picture. We see naturally and, and, and rightly, we see our flaws and weaknesses as individuals and as a church. But but I like but Paul reminds us, doesn't he, that that the that God is doing something great in the church, that the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed, and that we we don't see much of it. I, we don't see the half of it or the quarter of it, and mm -hmm. uh, we will see in the future. So we ought to be encouraged. God is doing a great thing in the church and uniting Jews and Gentiles and people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. In Jesus Christ, he's yeah. bringing great, he's bringing great glory to himself in doing this. That's helpful. Thanks. Um, Ephesians 3 ends with this re remarkable prayer. And there's, of course, another one back in chapter one. What do you think the function is of those prayers? And how would you say that they challenge our prayers, how they would instruct our prayers today? I mean, just something really basic. It's a good, it's a good pattern to pray those prayers ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so when we, when we pray for ourselves, our families, our churches, our fellow members in our churches, do we, are we praying for fellow believers in our churches? Well, we, we can, we can be praying, uh, those prayers mm -hmm. in particular. So we, you know, if, if we think, I'd like to pray for other people, but I don't know what to pray for. Well, pray, pray those prayers. <laughs> They're mm -hmm. there for us to pray. So that's very basic, and yet I think many of us, many Christians, don't do that. <laughs> they don't. They don't pray those prayers. Uh, the second thing I'd say is, the, I, I think both prayers. But let's take the one in chapter one first. Paul has just shared these glorious truths about being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, being elect, being redeemed, the the gift of the Spirit, the assurance of salvation. And then he prays that we'll understand those things in our hearts. Mm -hmm. So I, 
In other words, Paul recognizes that all those blessings in chapter 1, they can just be words to us. They may not mean anything to us. So how does God weave them or plant them into our hearts through prayer? So that he prays that they'd see the beauty of what he just talked about. And they, and I think not just see it and feel it. So, so the prayer is very practical. And it reminds us, sometimes we as evangelicals think, well, if we just get the right ideas in the people's heads. That's right. <laughs> then they'll, they'll be fine. But that's not enough because it also has to get into our hearts. And of course, we have to teach and instruct and learn the Bible. But it's not enough to go to Bible study fellowship or to, to listen to good preaching or study and if these things aren't woven into our hearts by prayer. So that's, that's chapter one. Mm-hmm. Then chapter three, I mean, very, I mean, quite similar in many ways, but there it's remarkable that Paul prays. I mean, looking at some of the specifics of the prayer in this case, that Paul prays that the spirit who indwells us, Christ who indwells us, isn't it interesting that he says that the spirit indwells us, Christ indwells us. You know, you see some of his Trinitarian theology. What is true of one person of the Trinity is true of another. But the Spirit indwells us, but he prays that the Spirit will indwell us with power. I mean, why, why is it, we, somebody could respond to that by saying, why, why are you praying that the, that the Spirit in Christ would indwell us? They already do. But Paul's prayer is that we would be indwelt with power. So, so that is somewhat similar to chapter one. Yes, mm-hmm. the Spirit indwells us, but is he indwelling us in power? And, and how do we know if the Spirit is enjoying us in power? What does the prayer say if, if we're experiencing God's love? Mm. So he prays that we would grasp and understand how great God's love is for us. So, you know, Kevin, you're one of your primary tasks, one of my primary tasks as preachers and teachers is that we would help people understand the love of God in Jesus Christ. And of course, we pr- we pray that for people. We pray that our people would would grasp this because that's a that's something that uh, only God can can do for someone. Only the Father revealed to someone how great His love is. And so, I think Owen said somewhere that every every sin we commit is uh, a failure to understand how much God loves us. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, chapter four again. You you talked about um, how it speaks of unity, and as I look at the church today, I mean, I feel very blessed in the church I'm in. But obviously, looking around in the Christian world, there seems to be a lot of division. You know, you see Christians siding with with Trumps or others with Hillary. You see Christians saying, "Go homeschooling, go go public schooling." Um, it just seems so many opportunities for division in the church. And I was just wondering what, how you thought chapter four encourages, challenges us as we try to keep the gospel central. Yeah. Well, and, and, and perhaps one encouragement is yes, we are united in Christ, but we do know from the time in the new Testament, first Corinthians is a key example that ch- church churches and Christians have suffered divisions from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And therefore they needed they needed exhortations, and Paul gives an exhortation here to to be unified. And and a, a key a key a part of that is to be humble. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, he starts there, or to be godly. So, um, so often in my own life and in all of our lives, what creates this unity? It's often pride. You know, in some, like you brought up political issues or, you know, or, or schooling issues. So often, well, right, Christians, Christians can have different opinions on a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so often the reason we're disunified is the way we talk to each other. That's true. That is, that is, it becomes very prideful and very competitive, and and we put down the other person who disagrees with us. But if we're humble, we re- begin to recognize what what are the non-negotiable issues. I mean, of course, it's not a it's not a Christian view to deny the Trinity. We can't. The, the, then, then church discipline is in order. But there's a lot of things we disagree on. Probably most things we disagree on. They're not a matter of orthodoxy. Then, and then we need to be humble. So I think it's remarkable that Paul calls us uh, to humility. But he also says the mark of immaturity in chapter four is, uh, that you're like children swayed by every wind of doctrine. Hmm. So another, another mark of maturity, another thing that's necessary for unity is a doctrinal understanding. Now, our church isn't perfect, but our church has a lot of doctrinal unity. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is we prize teaching scripture and theology. And so our people, they know what the, what the Bible teaches. And, and I think that's another reason a lot of churches suffer. There's, sometimes there's not very good teaching in the churches about what the scriptures say. Well, can you talk about some of the callings in verses 11 and 12 and the purposes of them? I think there's a lot of confusion about what apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are and how they relate. Yeah, well, uh, that is a very controversial issue. I believe the apostles and prophets no longer exist today. I, I think the gift of apostleship in the technical sense, and I think he has the technical sense in mind there, uh, I think the gift of apostleship in the technical sense, no one has that kind of authority today. And anyone who claims to be an apostle and uses the word apostle, even if they claim to be using it in a non-technical sense, I think that's dangerous. And I, 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 I can hardly think of an instance where that term is used where there's not abuse. Uh, and, and kind of an authoritarianism that's kind of dangerous. I think prophecy has also passed away as a gift. Paul says the church is founded on the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20. And I think prophecy has passed away as a gift because I take prophecy to be the perfect uh, teaching of, uh, of, of God's uh, mind. That is, uh, and, and I don't think anybody does that today. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think the prophets in the Old Testament, they never erred. And I think that was true in the prophets in the New Testament as well. So some people do see prophecy is still around today. But those I respect most, they think that prophets, the prophets, New Testament prophets today can make mistakes. But that's where I differ with them. So that's why I don't see it as existing. I don't know if you want to follow up on that. Um, Yeah, yeah, Grudem holds that view. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the the other three evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, you want to talk about those a little bit as well? Yes. I, I think those gifts, as far as I can see, I think those gifts do exist today. I think, uh, of course, uh, evangelists isn't that hard to understand. I think those are people who have a special gift 
for bringing others the gospel. Of course, we all have a responsibility, but uh, I'll never forget Dan Fuller, who taught at Fuller Seminary for many years, talking about when he was young, and he and another fellow would go to the campuses and evangelize. And that other fellow was Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade, which is now called Crew. Uh-huh. And uh, Dan would say they'd come home, and a lot more people came to faith through Bill Bright. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think I think Bill had an unusual gift of evangelism. So uh, I, I think certain people do have that gift. We're all called upon to proclaim the gospel, but some have it more than others. Uh, so uh, it's very, very helpful for our church. Um, and then pastors and teachers, I, you know, this is very disputed, but I take those to be essentially the same category. And, uh, and I think Paul is speaking especially of, of elders there. Who, who function as pastors and teachers. Of course, I think someone could be a teacher without being an elder. Uh, I think a woman can have a gift of teaching and where, which you would exercise fundamentally amongst other women. Um, but I think he's, he has mainly in mind, uh, people who are elders, overseers and pastors and churches. And the fundamental calling of a pastor is to teach. Mm-hmm. And you just think the article in between those two words, kind of binds them together as one group of group of people. I, I do. I do. Okay. Yes. There's a shift that takes place in the second half of the book. It, it moves, it seems, from what God has done to what God calls us to do. Could you talk about that, that transition for just a minute and why Paul would move in that order and why it's so important to recognize that? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Ephesians is a really clear, a clear distinction in chapters 1 through 3 between what God has done for us in Christ and then chapters 4 through 6 to what he calls us to do as, as Christians. And uh, I think, why is it important? Because grace, grace always undergirds demand so that, so that first we, we, we reflect on and consider and, and are blessed by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then we respond to that grace. We respond to what he's done by living in a new way. And, and Paul clearly has that paradigm in view. And, uh, I, it's a little overly simplistic and, uh, I don't endorse all of his theology, but Watchman Nee catches this nicely in his book called Sit, Walk, and Stand. So sit is the first three chapters. Sit with Christ in the heavenlies. He's poured his grace upon you. Chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 9. Walk, live in a new way because you sit with Christ in the heavenlies. And then 6, 10 and following, stand against the demonic powers uh, by God's grace. So that's a nice summary of that. And I also want to say those commands that are given to us, uh, even in the second half of the book, Paul reminds us of the kinds of things he's taught in chapters 1 through 3. So he says in chapter 5, right, walk in love as, as Christ has loved us and given himself up for us. So the call to love rooted in what Christ has done for us. Mm-hmm. And or, or he says at the end of chapter 4, uh, forgive as you've been forgiven. So why is this so important? Because we're, we're never called upon 
to just obey. We're, we're always called upon to obey because we've been loved, because we've been redeemed, because we've been elected, because we've been saved, because we've been reconciled. So it's always a response to the gospel. And Paul never wants us to forget the gospel. But the gospel does mean we live in a new way. And so he, he gives these exhortations and admonitions. Well, we have to talk a little bit about the section on marriage. And Lord, Lord willing, we'll have you here in November, and we'll talk about that in detail. But why are gender roles in the home such a big deal to Paul here? And what would you say to someone who was trying to argue that those words were for Paul's day and not our day? Yeah, yeah I think the fundamental objection, the fundamental reason why that view is wrong is that Paul calls upon men to lead and be the head and wives to submit, and he he grounds that in Christ's relationship to the church. And he says at the end of chapter 5, this is a great mystery, and he's been talking about marriage, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And I think what Paul means by that is marriage is a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. So that's very important. Mm-hmm. It isn't the other way around. It isn't as if... No. God first thinks of marriage and then thinks, oh, you know, Christ's relationship to the church, that's a nice, that'd be a nice illustration of marriage. No, it's the the opposite, Paul says. The mystery, what God has disclosed to us, what God has revealed to us, is that our marriages reflect Christ's relationship to the church. But Christ's relationship to the church isn't cultural. It's transcendent. Christ's relationship to the church is something that... uh transcends culture, and therefore, we have very good reason to say that what Paul says to husbands and wives there isn't cultural. Uh, sometimes people want to compare that to slave, his admonitions about slavery in chapter 6, but to that I would respond by saying marriage is a creation ordinance in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, but slavery Slavery is never endorsed or approved of in Scripture. It's always regulated. That's So marriage is a creation ordinance uh, created by God in the garden. Slavery is an evil human institution regulated, but never endorsed or approved of. And, and, we can, and by the way, we could just, you know, people often jump to slavery, but in chapter 6 he talks about children and parents. But... Um, uh, I mean, obviously, I think it's obvious, at least, that the relationship between children and parents is a transcultural one. Children should still obey their parents. Well, in Chapter 6, you just talked about Watchman Nee's verb that he would use, stand. Can you talk about the those verses that deal with putting on God's armor? I think that's an illustration that can be hard for us to grasp today. What What's God saying there? What are we supposed to do? Why is that important? Well, the first thing I want to say is it is important for us to recognize that there's a, there's a spiritual war going on that is not discernible. So the scripture informs us of something that, that we would not know on our own, and that is there are principalities and powers. There are demonic forces. They're Satan, and they're, they're opposed to us and standing against us. So Life is serious. There's a war. There's a battle. There's a fight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we need to be prepared for that. Paul's fundamental 
command to us is, because we're already saved, reconciled, elect, so forth and so on, his fundamental command to us is, stand, stand, stand in the grace you already have. He isn't, Paul doesn't say to us, win the victory over Satan and the devil. The victory's already been won. Stand and hold the line. Hold, hold the victory that's already been won is what he's arguing. When, when he talks about the armor, why does he use the armor? So I think simply to say there's a war going on. That's why he uses the armor imagery. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and, and so if there's a war going on, the armor imagery is very helpful. But, but I think we could put too much emphasis on the particular piece of armor that he's um, commenting on here or there. I think he's just using illustrations to say there's a war. And so what is the, the kind of things he says? Put on the helmet of salvation. Right? Remember your salvation. Have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. Always be ready to share the gospel. Uh, have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, and, and, and so forth and so on. So it, it isn't so much the particular piece of armor. Actually, what Paul says in those verses are, are, are things that we find many other places in the Bible and in Paul's letters. So he's simply saying, live out the Christian life that you have. That's What does it mean to stand? It means have faith, hope, and love. Uh, live the Christian life. Appropriate the, the new life you have in Jesus Christ, as I think what Paul is saying there. So on the one hand, on the one hand, we could deny the demonic. You know, C.S. Lewis warned us about this, didn't he? There's two equal and opposite errors we can make about Satan. One is to ignore him. The other is to be overly frightened about him. That's right. Uh, we, we don't need to be frightened. We, we, we have conquered him in Jesus Christ. That's helpful. Well, any last nuggets, words of wisdom about Ephesians you want to leave us with, Tom? Well, uh, I, I would just say that for studying Ephesians, I mean, it is, uh, it is one of the greatest letters Paul wrote in terms of theology. I mean, they're all good, aren't they? But, mm-hmm. but there's a depth in Ephesians. And, uh, and, and there's, uh, there's a sense, I guess I would want to end by talking about Ephesians by saying, reminding myself and all of us again, there's a glory in the church. There's a beauty in the church. Amen. There's a loveliness about the church that, um, that Ephesians teaches and, for a lot of us today who are so individualistic, we forget about how important it is to be committed to be a member of a church. Mm-hmm. And uh, modern, modern Westerners, they just don't have a good understanding of that. Uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting. You know, they'll just, they'll just go to another church sometimes very easily uh, and, and, and switch churches. Sometimes that should happen, but we should. I think we should be very committed to our local churches. Amen. Well, Tom, I'm so thankful for you. As I, you, you spoke a while about unity and humility earlier, and as I just think about examples of humility in my life, as I think about you in a classroom where you have a a young seminary student who's kind of going off protesting something you're saying, and just remembering the way you handled that with grace, and just being around you in Clifton, and I just see you um, exemplifying that so much and I'm so thankful and I, I can't wait to see you and Diane when you come out here in November so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me and I'm so grateful for you I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tom and I hope it inspires you even more to dig into the riches that are found in the book of Ephesians 
As we mentioned also, look for details for the conference this fall, where we will welcome Tom along with his wife, Diane, to come to Karis Church and to talk about gender roles and what difference those make in the home, but also the life of the church. Don't miss our next episode. We will have the second half of our conversation with Scott and Laura Goodwine as we consider how to disciple our children. I hide for your way.